You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, Be'ezras Hashem, we're going to be continuing with our series of shirim on Ishbitz Radzin. And tonight's shir is going to be on the topic of determinism, fatalism, however, the different mechkarim, the different academic interpretations of the school of Ishbitz and Radzin have termed it. What we're going to be discussing tonight is the concept of Hakolbi De Shemayim that everything is in the hands of heaven, and the way that the Meshiloach in numerous places teaches or learns out this statement of Chazal is that even the concept of fear of heaven or what is a connotation towards human volitional action or the service of God in this world. Now, the title of this year is going to be Choosing Not to Choose. And the paradoxical notion within the title itself is really going to be the culmination of this year. That sof davar hakol nishma, when all is said and done, according to my own reading of the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin, the entire concept of bechira and yediyah, of free choice versus foreknowledge, and the question of human autonomy in the face of an annihilating presence of godliness within the world is going to lead us to a paradoxical space where free will and human autonomy is upheld and it still remains an edifice of what constitutes human service towards the divine or divine worship. But at the end of the day, the fullest expression of human autonomy, the fullest expression of free choice is the individual's capacity to choose to operate their lives on a level as if there were no free choice. And we're going to see what we mean by this title towards the end of this year. Now, before we begin, there's a lot of, of conscious, not fear, but trepidation in discussing these topics, because on the one hand, the way that Ishbitz and Radzin has been interpreted through the lens of various academics and holy academics, there's nothing wrong with what they're writing, but the emphasis has been placed typically on what is described as the antinomian tendency within the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin, meaning to say the tendency to soften the responsibility of an individual to the confines of what might be termed as halachic observance. That because the Ishbitzer and because the Radziner and the Tzadikim of this base Medrash talk so openly about the annihilating presence of divinity within the world, 
of the fact that there is nothing outside the realm of HaKadosh Baruch Hu or God's reign or grasp or reach. So there's a certain possibility that opens up wherein a person can look at their experiences and look at their role in this world and say to themselves that the rules, the boundaries, this ontological system of the law no longer applies to an individual. And what I want to state at the outset is that to begin to discuss the theology of halacha or the theology of the law within the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin would be something that necessitated five or six shirim on its own in terms of the development of the concept of the law and how within the law itself there is contained a subversive sense of lawfulness wherein sometimes the upholding of the law demands one to subvert the law itself in the concept of Esla Asos Hashem Hifru Sarasecha, like Eliyahu by Hara Carmel, that there comes a time for certain individuals that to uphold the law, a person must transgress the law, to begin to properly analyze those sugyos. And these are sugyos that already have precedent within writings way before the Meishiloach. But to analyze the Meishiloach's particular novelty in this sugya would take five or six hours at least. And so what we won't be speaking about tonight is the concept of antinomianism or negating the law or a chait lishma or a sin for the sake of heaven, so to speak, a concept that has been popularized by certain academics when it comes to the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin. What we're going to be speaking about tonight is the concept of Hakolbi de Shemayim, that everything is within the hands of heaven. Now, when one properly understands the concept of everything being within the hands of heaven, according to Ishbitz and Radzin, so that ultimately leads as a symptom later on to the concept of halacha and esla sosla Hashem and chet l'shma, which is obviously present in the writings. But tonight, I don't want to discuss the symptom, the antinomianism, the concept of halacha within the writings of the Meishi Loach and the Ishbitz and Radzin based Medrash. But what I want to talk about is the source of this symptom, the origin from where this conception of halacha is born. And that is going to be the concept of Hakobi de Shemayim, Afilu Yira Shemayim, that everything is within the hands of heaven, even the individual's capacity to align themselves with heaven, which is a direct movement away from the statement of Chazal. Because when Chazal talk about God's reign in this world, or the limits of God's reign in this world, so to speak, the statement, at least in the Masechus Brachos, is that Hakobi de Shemayim, Chutz Shemayim, that everything is within the hands of heaven, the constitution of an individual, their emotional makeup, their psychological tendencies, their genetic dispositions towards certain behaviors and certain attitudes in the world, all of that is determined from before the time that they were born. And that determinism is something that the individual cannot change. The person has no will to change it from one way to the other. But Chazal state that everything being in the hands of heaven leaves room for one thing that is not in the hands of heaven, and that's Yerosh Shemayim. Hakobi de Shemayim chutz Shemayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven except for divine worship, for the fear of heaven. Meaning to say, 
that God, so to speak, leaves an empty plane or a playing field wherein the individual is capable of engaging through the act of Bechira, through volitional action and decision-making and human autonomy that enables them to choose to serve God. And because they have chosen to serve God, therefore they're deserving of reward for the service of God, or the opposite, punishment in whatever sense we conceive of the concept of punishment for a departure or a deviation away from the service of God. So in spite of the fact that Chazal's statement lends to this deterministic, fatalistic prescription wherein everything that happens to a human being is already presupposed by the divine source, Chazal talk their way back and allow for this open playing field, this neutral zone wherein the individual is capable of deciding for themselves through their own volitional behavior, through their own autonomy, how they're going to worship God, how they're going to connect to God, how they're going to connect to the idea of the infinite. Comes along the rut, and rather, let me step back for a second, and this concept of Bechira, this concept of volitional activity, or the possibility of a human being determining which direction they would like to lead their lives, whether we choose to cleave or attempt to cleave or move towards all things that are described as holy and sacred in the hopes of finding a little bit of comfort in this world, or the opposite is also true. A person can choose to move away from holiness and that which is sacred towards deviancy and transgressions. And for the Rishone Machshava, for the philosophers of Judaism, this concept of Bechira became not only a psychological truism, but a tenant of faith. That it was a fundamental necessity to believe in the concept of human volitionality or human autonomy. That the fact that the human being is capable of choosing between right or wrong, or good and evil, or up and down, or right and left, was a foundational concept within the conception of Judaism and most monotheistic religions. So that Maimonides, the Rambam, states explicitly in his Yad HaChazaka that the belief in volitional activity, the belief in human autonomy, the belief in Bechira Chavshis and free will is a fundamental tenet of faith. And while we cannot fully understand how the free will of the individual can align itself with the ever-present nature of an omniscient creator, what is referred to as yidia or the foreknowledge of God regarding all behaviors of human beings from the beginning of history towards its teleological end, nevertheless, this paradox between yidia and Bechira does not negate the fact that we must hold deeply the foundational tenet of faith that human beings have autonomy and that our choices are our own. And because our choices are our own, we are culpable to face reward for positive engagement and punishment in whatever sense we understand the concept of punishment for negative engagement or transgressive engagement. And the Ravid already, on his Hagos on the Rambam, says something remarkable. He says, Rambam, 
you bring up this fundamental question of Yidiya and Bechira. You bring up this foundational question of human autonomy and volitional action and the capacity to choose which way we would like to go in the world, aligned against this annihilating presence of an omniscient and omnipresent creator who knows everything, so to speak, from the beginning of creation, even before it is enacted. And instead of offering an answer, instead of offering some rational conception wherein both can operate simultaneously, you seem to simply state, says the Ravid, that to understand this question is beyond human logic. And the Ravid says, it would have been better for you to be silent in this sugya. It would have been better for you to be quiet without understanding what you were fully answering. Because now you've brought up this philosophical conundrum wherein two opposites are operating simultaneity. That on the one hand, God's presence is omnipotent and omniscient, and therefore the foreknowledge of God overrides the volitional or autonomous behavior of human beings. Yet on the other hand, in spite of all of that, you're claiming that human volitional behavior and the belief in human autonomy is a fundamental tenet of faith. And instead of settling this contradiction, you uphold the paradox and say that both are true simultaneously, except that human beings are incapable of understanding it. And therefore, says the Ravid, you should have been silent. And what I would like to posit is that both of these tzaddikim, the Rambam and the Ravid, in their interaction with regards to this sugya, is going to be the basis of our shir. But the Rambam and Maimonides answer that somehow, some way, in spite of God's omnipotence, in spite of the fact that the infinite knows everything that will take place with infinitude, because as we've said in all of our shirim until now, finitude is an inherent part of the infinite capacity to express itself. Nevertheless, somehow, some way, through spooky action at a distance, there abides and there remains the capacity of human volitional activity and autonomy. So the Rambam says, in spite of the fact that there's this deep, paradox, nevertheless, we must deeply believe in the capacity of Bechira. And the Ravid says, you should have been silent, Rambam. Why speak when there's nothing to be said? Now, what I would like to say is that the Ravid is not arguing with the Rambam. The Ravid is not coming to argue against or contradict the Rambam's conclusion that autonomous behavior exists. But rather, the Ravid is fighting against the Rambam for his willingness to say it. The Ravid is saying, you should have been silent. There's no philosophical contradiction here. He's simply saying, we don't speak about such things because at the end of the day, the deep paradoxes that constitute the self, which is something that we've been discussing from the outset of these shirim on Ishbits, is something that is not expressible in words. It's something that silence can only say. Because it's only at the deepest core of the self that each person knows that no matter how deeply we believe in the omnipotence and the omniscient presence of an infinite creator, nevertheless, we are still going to be in control of our own destiny. That the volitional acts that we engage in or the autonomous sense that drives human subjectivity 
is true in spite of the fact that in a philosophical sense, it's not true. So the only argument that we have here is whether to speak it out or not. Because the Rambam says, yes, we can speak it out. The Ravid says, be silent. And it's specifically in this unity, in this paradoxical partnership between speaking out paradoxical truths on the one hand, and on the other hand, this impulse to remain silent, that we begin to find ourselves in a third area, a neutral space of speaking silence, where in that which we say, even when we decide to speak about paradoxical concepts, we speak, yet what we say still remains silent in the sense that it cannot be fully grasped by the human intellect. And I believe that is what we're going to see in the writings of the Meishiloach. Now, to begin with, the Meishiloach, in his first teaching, the first Torah, in the first volume of the Meishiloach, the first teaching on Parshas Bereshis, brings down a teaching from the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, from the Holy Baal Shem Tov. Now, last week, we showed how within the writings of the Sod Yisharim and the Beis Yaakov and the Meishiloach, we can already find a direct relationship with the origins of the Hasidic conception of faith and religious worship in the sense that the concept of Tainug Tamidi Eno Tainug, that perpetual pleasure is not pleasure, which is a statement that is attributed directly to the Baal Shem Tov, becomes a foundational concept in the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin. But tonight we're going to see another way that the Baal Shem Tov becomes the bedrock or the foundation for the teachings of Ishbitz and Radzin. Almost as if to say that anybody who doubts the validity or the significance or the functionality of the teachings of Ishbitz and Radzin as an iteration of the Hasidic doctrine initiated with the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh is mistaken because what the, what the Meishilach is showing is that everything I'm saying is rooted in the Baal Shem Tov. And that is why I believe the Meishilach chooses to quote the Baal Shem Tov in the first teaching, in the first Torah, in the Sefer. And the teaching that the Meishilach quotes from the Baal Shem Tov is as follows. Like the Baal Shem Tov has said or has taught us, that the place where the individual is thinking, that place within the individual when they choose to engage consciously, internally, through thought, or rather through emotional thought, which becomes the main vehicle for divine worship in the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin, that is where a person is. Wherever you go in your mind, there you are. As Dr. Benji Epstein writes so beautifully in his book, Living in the Presence, wherever a person goes in their mind, wherever a person chooses to think or contemplate, that's not simply an escape from reality. That's not simply a way of being mitmodate or dealing with reality, but rather that is the reality. That there is an ontological significance to the cognitive processes that we go through. That by thinking a certain way, we form our reality. Now this is not to claim any form of magical thinking 
as if through the power of attraction, through thinking hard enough, we can actually impact external reality, but rather external reality abides in its presentness and its thingness and the way that it abides. And it is our capacity as individuals to choose how we would like to interpret reality. And that koach, that koach ha-machshava, that koach of thought, that koach of human contemplation defines how we interact with reality. It doesn't chas v'shalom change reality in some new agey cheap way of philosophizing fantasies, but rather the way that we think allows us to create our own universe, our own world, like the Zohar HaKadosh talks about so beautifully in the Hakdama to the Zohar that through Chedushe Torah, through contemplating novelty within Torah, we create our own internal worlds. So the opening teaching of the Meshiloach is that where our thoughts are is where we are. And that if a person chooses to think in a particular way or conjure or abide within a certain paradoxical stance within the world, that becomes our reality. The next teaching that the Meshiloach is going to be saying with regards to what we're going to try and understand tonight is going to be in Parshas Vayeshev. Once we understand that for the Meshiloach, whether it's with regards to the concept of a constitutive lack that we discussed last week, or whether it's with regards to the concept of an abiding desire that remains in spite of what we taste because the infinite is perpetually removed from the finite, as we discussed two weeks ago, and all of the previous shirim that have led us up to this year, for the Meishi Loach, reality is a function of a human being's interpretation. That the way that we look at the world, the way that we choose to see our life in the world, is the way the world is truly going to be. And the Meishi Loach prepares for us in a number of his teachings that there are two possibilities, two ways that an individual can look at the world, can look at themselves, can look at other people, and can look at the world. One way that the Meishi Loach is going to associate with the concept of Yehuda, the tribe of Judah, Mashiach ben David, the Davidic dynasty, or the Sphira of Malchus, as we discussed in the last series of Shirim, and that way is going to counteract a second way of looking at the world, which is going to be associated with Yosef, with the Josephic Messiah, Mashiach ben Yosef, the sphere of Yesod, the concept of connectivity. And these two ways of looking at reality, these two ways of contemplating reality, are not two different people. They're not two different choices that a person makes, but rather each and every individual that finds themselves within the base medrash of Ishbitz and Radzin contains this split within them. This split between Yosef mindset and Yehuda mindset. The capacity to look at the world through the concept of Mashiach ben Yosef and the, the capacity to look at the world through the concept of Mashiach ben David. These do not represent two separate archetypes of spiritual service, but rather each and every person contains within themselves this multitude, this split, 
like Rav Soloveitchik points out already in Lonely Man of Faith, Adam 1 and Adam 2, that each individual has a capacity of seeing the world through two different ways, that I contain multitudes. Or like Rav Cook responded to Brenner in his criticism of Rav Cook's early writings, like we discussed in the Shirim on Reish Milin, that Brenner said, here is an individual who finds themselves stuck in contradiction, in steros and paradoxes, where on the one hand, he worships the secular, so to speak. On the other hand, he sees the secular as speaking towards holiness. And Rav Cook responded in a personal diary entry that there was an individual who said that my soul was torn. There is an individual who said that my soul is dualistic, that there's multiple perspectives within my soul. And instead of fighting against this criticism, Rav Cook says, they spoke truthfully, they spoke authentically, because of course my soul is torn. That's not a symptom of a failure, but that's constitutive, like we spoke about last week, that each and every one of us has a baseline chisaron within us that creates a dualistic perception of the world. And that each and every person is at battle within themselves between these two voices, between Adam 1 and Adam 2, between the secular and the sacred, between the Kodesh and the whole, or in the iteration of Ishbitz and Radzin, between the Yehuda perspective and the Yosef perspective. Chazal have already emphasized this as we saw so deeply in the Shirim on addiction. These are the paradigms of the Balchuva and the Tzaddik, or the conception in history as Hasidus and Lithuanian approaches to the world. Now, what the Meshiloach is going to align for us in this binary opposition between Yosef and Yehuda are two perspectives on looking at the concept of Bechira Chavshis, of looking at human volitional action or human autonomous behavior. But before we go there, what I would like to set up again, following the first teaching of the Meshiloach, where he says that everything is contingent on the thought of the individual, is that for the Meshiloach, the question of Bechira and Yediya, the question of the interaction between free will that the human being must uphold as a tenant of their faith, as well as the annihilating imminence of God, so to speak, which negates the capacity for free will, is going to be a matter of thought, and that the matter is contingent on thought. And the Meshiloach says as follows in Parshas Vayeshev, in the first chilek of Meshiloach, in Parshas Vayeshev, he says as follows, All activity, all choice that an individual engages in in this world, appears to be the action of human beings. It appears that human beings are in control of the actions that take place. But from the perspective of thought, or even the emotions that a person has, there we say that that's in the hands of God. And here the Meishiloach, as Abiezer Kohn points out in his wonderful dissertation, is almost criticizing a trend in Hasidic thought which says that the machshavos that a person has, the thoughts that a person has, are out of their control. And that when negative thoughts or strange thoughts or foreign thoughts or alien thoughts or neutral thoughts fall into an individual's mind, their job is to say, okay, this is out of my control and this was a thought that I had and therefore I must be ones in it. I have no control. But the Meshilach flips this concept on its head. He says, parshios, and these parshios of Vayishlach and Vayeshev and the end parshios of Bereshis, 
God has taught us, action and activity within this world is in the hands of God. We have no capacity to control what happens as a result of our behaviors. But the thought that a person has is what is in the hands of the human being. So here the Meshiloach is again concretizing a fundamental truth for the Meshiloach and the Tzadikim of Ishbitz and Radzin, which is that we live in a world where we are not in control of what happens as a result of our behaviors. We are not in control of the circumstances of the things that take place in our world. We are not in control of what happens to us. The only thing that we are in control of, the only thing that the human being has true volitional control over is how we choose to look at those things that happen to us. Now the chiddush or the novelty of the Meshiloach is that he applies this to halachic observance and he applies this to the experiences that we have in this world. That we are not in control of the impulses of the vicissitudes of genetic disposition and predisposition towards how we engage in the world. And we're certainly not in control of the things that happen to us or the way other people impose their own needs on us. Those are things that are completely out of the control of an individual. What we are in control of is our capacity to choose how to think about the things that happen to us. And this is something that becomes abundantly clear and it's incredibly important to understand this. As David Bashevkin points out so clearly in his book, Synagogue, as well as in his Sefer that preceded the book Synagogue, Baroges Rachem Tizkor, especially in the third simon when he speaks about Ishbitz and Radzin's conception of Chatayim Lamalam and Abachira, or sin that is above human volitional choice, that nowhere, in the history of Ishbitz or Radzin, is there any expression of the sense that halacha is not important or that human choice in the day-to-day is not important? If anything, we see the opposite, that the story goes that for the Meishi Lawach, that when he put his left shoe on before his right shoe, he fainted. And this just goes to show, whether it's apocryphal or not, goes to show that the willingness to abide according to laws and lawfulness and volitional behavior and a sense of autonomy reigns supreme within the base medrash of Ishbitz and Radzin, as David points out so clearly in his book, Synagogue. But the question then becomes, how do I choose to look at the things that happen to me? How do I choose to look at the fact that very often things are beyond my control? There are things that happen that I'm not in control of. And the chiddush of the Ishbitzer and the Radziner are that they chose to show this from within the Torah itself. There's no unique novelty when we look at the core of it regarding the concept of free will or the abiding foreknowledge of godly wisdom between the Meishiloach and the Leshem Shabbat as we discussed in the Shir, Neira Alila, the wondrous nature that God interacts with the world, that this is a trend that is found in previous Kabbalistic writings as well as intellectual trends within Judaism. The unique function of the Meishiloach and the Beis Medrash of Ishbitz and Radzin in this sugya is going to be where they draw it from. 
The Meshiloach is showing it directly from the stories of Torah Shabbat There's no need to relegate this concept of the fact that there are times in the world where God, so to speak, runs things beyond our control, where we have no capacity to choose which way we're going. There's no need to find a paradigm for this in Torah Shabbat Peh or Kabbalah. The Meshiloach and his base Medrash show it from within Torah Shabbat and we're going to see that the end result of what the Meshilach is trying to teach us is that there are always two ways of looking at the things that happen to us. There are always two ways of looking at the things that we do from the perspective of retrospection, of limafreya, of looking at things from a past perspective. When we look back on our behaviors, there's always two ways to look at it. And what the Meshulach describes in Parshas Vayeshev, and it's a theme that runs throughout the Svarim of Ishbitz and Radzin, are that there are two archetypal ideals within the individual. There's the Yehuda ideal, and there's the Yosef ideal. The Yosef ideal is the ideal or the perspective that looks at the world and says that everything must be strict according to the measure of the law and run with a deep sense of human control and human volitional behavior that everything must be according to the minutia or the details of what must be correct. And the human being is in control of everything and every, any deviation away from that, any deviation away from the ideal of how we're meant to function is going to be considered a sin or a transgression and it must be fought against with fervor and anger and zealousness. As the Meshilach so famously speaks about an idea which has been fetishized in the sugya, in the concept of Zimri and Pinchas, which we're not going to get into, but that the ideal, the paradigm of Yosef, or the Midah of Yesod, is that everything must be strict and specific and clear, and there can be no deviation away from that. And any time there appears to be a deviation, it must be punished with wrath and fury. And that perspective of the world wants everything to be, to be the way that we want it to be that my desire as a human being to impose my judgments and my limits on myself, on other people and the world, reigns supreme. And things must be according to my own understanding. The paradigm of the tzaddik, the paradigm of that Lithuanian conception of religious worship that sees everything needing to be perfect and perfectly squared away. But at the same moment, paradoxically and simultaneously, there's the Yehuda perspective. When a person looks at the biblical personality of Yehuda and the Davidic dynasty that descends away from Yehuda, there's a realization that very often in order to procure divine will within the world, an individual must be willing to sacrifice their own religious ideals. There's a need for an individual to recognize that I might think that things have to be one way, but in truth, at the end of the day, God has his way. That the infinite will impose its will on creation no matter what. And this Davidic personality, this concept of Yehuda, is willing to enter into murky parts of existence, willing to live within Suffolk, willing to subdue that all-too-human desire to have things be certain and according to my own will, 
And they're capable of throwing themselves into the abyss of non-knowing, of not knowing which way is up and which way is down or which action will allow for the will of God to fully express itself within the world. And these two personalities, like we said, are always operating against one another. Now, for the Meishiloach and the Tzadikim of Ishbitz and Radzin, this argumentation or this confrontation between the Yosef perspective, which is the Tzadik, which says that there can be no deviation away from what I want and that my desire must imprint itself on reality, and this Yehuda perspective, which is the Balshuva, who is willing to go into the murky realms of being, into the darkness, to develop relationships that seem at first glance to be second and away from what is right and what is just, like Yehuda and Tamar, or Rus and Boaz, from which the Davidic dynasty is born. And the Yehuda personality, the Balshuva personality, the Hasidic personality, is willing to look at the darker parts of experience and say, this is also the will of God. And they're willing to subdue that all-too-natural need to have my desire be the determining factor in the world. And the Meshiloach says that this is expressed in the writings, in the Torah, when it comes to Yosef HaTzadik and his relationship with Paro. Because what we find by Paro is that the king, the king must always have two personalities associated with it. There's going to be the Sarhamashkim, and there's going to be the Sarah Ofim. There's going to be the pourer of wine and the baker for the king, like we see in the biblical paro, that these two individuals were thrown into jail. When it comes to the baker, this personality of the baker is liable for his mistakes. Because according to the baker's personality, everything has to be the way I want it to be. The ingredients must be set up perfectly. The bread must be baked perfectly. There's no room for deviation. And any deviation away from the law, any deviation away from how I want to impose my consciousness or my selfhood on the world or on other people or on God is liable to be punished by death because it's a transgression away from the ideal, which is why the baker in Paro's sugya, in the story of Paro, who there was a pebble in his bread, is liable to death and he finds himself killed because there's no room for a mistake from the Josephic perspective, from the perspective of the tzaddik. But then there's going to be the sarhamashkim, then there's going to be the wine pourer. And the wine pourer is liable to make mistakes. Sometimes a fly is going to fly into the wine even after it's left the hand of the Yehuda personality. Sometimes there are going to be things that happen to us or happen to our behaviors or happen to our intentions that are beyond our control. And instead of holding ourselves liable, instead of looking at ourselves and judging ourselves unfavorably and looking at ourselves as if we're failures and if we've transgressed, as if we've broken our pact with the divine or the infinite will in the world, the Yehuda perspective is capable of saying, here too lies the presence of God that this mistake on a certain level is beyond my control because it's within the hands of God. I have done what I can do in terms of controlling the circumstances of my reality. The only thing I must try and do right now is change the way I look at, at the circumstances of myself. That the action is not in my hands. The only thing that is in my hands is how I choose to look at the action. And these two personalities are constantly fighting against one another. 
On the one hand, this strict sense that any deviation away from how I want the world to go is a failure. And on the other hand, the willingness to look at myself and say, in spite of my failures, I am still following through with the divine purpose of recognizing within my thoughts that anything that happens to me is already, always already included within the divine plan for creation. Now, <clears throat> this affects how we conceive the concept of Bechira. This affects how we conceive human volitional behavior. That it's not either or for the Meshiloach. The Meshiloach, like the Rambam and like the Ravid, are not either affirming Bechira or affirming Yediyah, affirming human autonomy or affirming divine omnipotence but rather they're willing to make room for both in some form of simultaneous paradox, which is unique to each and every individual as we're going to see. And one of the few places that this becomes incredibly clear is in Parshas Vayera. In Parshas Vayera, in the first volume of Meshiloach, in Dibir HaMaskil, V'tishach Sara Lemor Loitzachakti, and Sara laughed and says, I didn't laugh. This is with regards to Sarah who has already decided that according to the natural order of things, it is impossible for God to give Avraham a son. It is impossible for us to have a child because according to the strict limit of the law, according to the confines of natural reality, things are not going to change. That the world operates in a certain way and there's nothing the human being can do to change it. But what Hashem comes to say to Sarah is that, no, if you choose to think a different way about things, you will find that things can change. And the Meshulah says as follows, The depth of the matter in this is that which is written in the Mesechus Brachos, that everything is in the hands of heaven except for human volitional behavior, except for human autonomy. It's only according to the gvul tfisas seichal ha'adam, to the limited conception of human understanding. Again, echoing the concept of the Rambam, that the difficulty that we find in aligning Bechira and Yediya, foreknowledge and autonomy, is not an ontological problem, but it's, a, it's an epistemological problem. The fact that the two interact is not a problem in reality. The problem is within our own tfisa, within our own subjective experience of these things, because it's something that confounds the mind. Even how we serve God in this world is in the hands of heaven, because God's presence is annihilating. The tzimtzum is lav kipshuto. God's presence has never left the world. It's still ever-present in spite of the fact that our own subjective consciousness blocks it out. V'rak be'olam hazeh, only in this world, histir Hashem yisbarach darcho. Hashem has concealed his ways. And the midah of Yitzchak, this laughter, this paradigm of messianic laughter, which sees the opposite in reality, which sees the capacity to transverse everything which appears to be negative, is the individual who understands that even Yerat even Yerat even the area where volitional activity and autonomous behavior needs to remain supreme, even that is within the hands of heaven. 
And he says that the Bechira of an individual is Kiklipas Hashum, like the, the sheath of garlic, like a, a covering of garlic. And Herzl Hefter in his dissertation, or his thesis rather, discusses this phrase of the sheath of garlic very beautifully, questioning from sources in Chazal what the sheath of garlic actually means. But the point that the Meshulach is coming to say is that Bechira is a fundamental necessity to human experience. Just like the covering of garlic is a fundamental necessity to the continuity of garlic. Because without the sheaf, garlic could not grow. Bechira, or our limited concept of Bechira and human autonomy is a fundamental necessity within the world, within the 6,000 years of millennia associated with Yosef. But nevertheless, there's a way of looking at the world where we see that at the end of the day, our ability to figure out what is within our hands and what is within the hands of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is beyond our capacity of understanding. And therefore, it's totally dependent on how we choose to look at it. This is going to be expressed very beautifully in the teaching that we already looked at from the Meshiloach. And this is, again, still going to be in Chelek Aleph of the Meshiloach. This is going to be in the Chelek of Tehillim. And it's going to be on Mizmor Tzadi Bey's Mizmor Shirli Omashabbos. So like we said, Mizmor Shirli Omashabbos, it says, Ma'od ma'amku machshvosecha. How deep are your thoughts, God? How removed are your thoughts and your ways from human understanding? And the Meshilach asks the question because the next Pasuk is, Ish ba'ar lo A foolish individual can never understand this. And the Meshilach says, why only a foolish individual? Even a wise individual, even the most genius of individuals is incapable of understanding the depth of God's thoughts. And the Meshilach here, as we spoke about in the Shir on desire, the dissatisfaction of the soul, that because the finite can never truly grasp the infinite, what this Kapitel Tehillim is saying, that it's only a foolish person who began to think that we can even have a grasp of God. Ish ba'ar lo the foolish individual has no capacity to understand how deep the thoughts of God are. And they think that they can understand things. And the introduction to this teaching is as follows. The Meshilach quotes from the Rambam. He quotes from Maimonides in the fifth parak, Mehilchos Tshuva Halacha He. Parak He, Halacha He, and Hilchas Tshuva. And the Lashon of the Rambam is, Shema Tomer Haloha Kadush Baruch Yoda Komashi Yevekodem Shia Yada Rasha. Maybe a person can claim that God knows everything beforehand, even before human volitional or autonomous behavior, and he knows whether a person is going to be righteous or wicked. And then a person might say that if God knows all of this, then it doesn't really make a difference. Then how can there be a concept of reward or punishment? Meaning to say the Rambam is questioning the validity of the concept of autonomy. The Meshulach goes on and he says, this is why Hashem is saying that it's impossible to understand. Because he's not coming to settle the question of Yadira and Bechira. He's coming to say that it is beyond our capacity to understand. That somehow, some way, Yadira and Bechira still interact paradoxically. That a person can choose to live within the world of not knowing how Hashem decides that choice and foreknowledge are going to interact. But nevertheless, that's a choice that a person makes. It's a choice that a person makes to live within a space of not choosing. And the Meshulach says that the Rambam's machlokas, the Rambam's difficulty here, is based on the fact that it is impossible for the human mind to comprehend 
how these two paradoxical moments interact simultaneously, but nevertheless, they operate simultaneously. That is the main point of the Ishbitzer when it comes to determinism, according to my humble opinion. That it's not a question of either or, it's a question of both and. Both are always operating simultaneously. The difference is that the Ishbitzer and the Tzaddikim of Ishbitz and Radzin bring into our spiritual consciousness the fact that it is impossible for us to truly grasp this. And this is where I want to really turn towards the Sod Yasharim. The Sod Yasharim in his Psicha, or his Beis Shara Lebeis Yaakov, says as follows on the 88th page. A person must believe with deep faith and they must concretize within their hearts and within their soul a true and abiding faith that all of our knowledge and all of our cognition and all of our thinking and all ways that we understand reality is a created aspect in the hands of God. That our grasp of how Hashem interacts in this world is created by God. And that it's very possible for God to switch everything immediately. That from one moment to the next, the way we look at things can change, it can shift. Because our consciousness, our mind, our epistemological capacity to look at the world in a certain way is always already a created aspect. That this conundrum between Bechira and Yediyah, this confrontation between foreknowledge and autonomy, is created which means that it's only because of the limit that God has placed within our minds that we can't move beyond finitude, we can't move beyond limitation, that we can't truly understand how both interact together. And that's because God wanted Bechira. For Ishbitz and Radzin, Bechira is the fundamental mode of engaging in reality. That it's only by volitional choice that we have the capacity of showing any strength of our neshama. But God has created our minds in such a way that what we see as Bechira and Yadiya is not necessarily the reality of Bechira and Yadiya. And that all of our conceptions of what it means to human being or what it means to be a limited creature is because we are always already limited. We always already have an abiding lack within us which states that we are not infinite and that we can't truly understand how the world operates. It's specifically because of human limitation that Bechira emerges. Because Hashem has decided, so to speak, the infinite has decided to serve with free will. And there's a limit in our minds that blocks us from being capable of understanding how free will and foreknowledge interact. But that blockage only has to do with the way we choose to look at our experiences. For the Meshiloach, we are not in control of what happens to us. We are not in control of the experiences that are imposed on us or even that our impulses impose on others. The only thing that we are in control of is how we choose to be mitmoded with it, how we choose to face it. Because the place that a person is in, in their thoughts, is the abiding truth of human experience that God is capable of changing within this person their own way of thinking from one mode of conception to another. And he continues to say that that even the way of knowledge is always in the hands of God. 
and the way that we understand experience and the way that we know our own lives. That two paradoxical concepts cannot be operating at once. That just as certain as we are that it's impossible for two polar opposites to be operating at once, so too God can change our minds and create within our own epistemological mindful state the fact that both are true at once. That both Bechira and Yidia can be true. And that it's not a contradiction. And this is the basis of, of Bechira and Yidia. What the Sodia Sharm expresses countless times is the concept that each human being, their concept of Bechira is relative. Lefi koach gvul hasagaso, according to the limited nature of that human being's understanding. Something that is expressed explicitly in the writings of Rev. Eliyahu Adesler in Mikhtav Me'eliyahu on the concept of Nikudas HaBechira, something that is deeply imposed by the writings of Rav Tzadok HaKohen Milublin, who drew these teachings from the Ishbitzer himself. The ideal that we need to leave the sugya with, and again, more so than ever, I'm very much aware that there is so much more to be said. There is so much more to be said when it comes to this sugya. But the main theme that we have to try and understand is as follows, that for the Ishbitzer and for the Radziner, and this is in response to my good friend Rabbi Pesach Summer's question from last week's year of how does this stim with tshuva? How is it possible that accepting the basic fact of a human being's lack within themselves can align with tshuva? For the Meshiloach and for Tzadok HaKohen Meleblin and the way these teachings have formed themselves in modern Jewish consciousness is that no matter where we go, there we are. No matter where a person finds themselves, we can draw down the light of God into that experience. That after the fact, after what has happened, we are capable of thinking in our minds and finding Hashem there. And the most beautiful teaching, in my opinion, from the Meishi Loach, and this is going to be in Chelak Beis, in Parshas Ekev, Mamrim Hayisem Im Hashem, the Pasuk in trying to argue against and, and claim the failure of the Jewish people, you were brazen with Hashem. You rebelled against Hashem. The Pasuk says, Mamrim Hayisan Im Hashem. You were rebellious against Hashem. Hainu, says the Meshiloach, She'af Shahayisem Mimamrim. Even though you were rebellious and fighting against Hashem, Mikol Makom Hayisem Im Hashem. Nevertheless, you were with Hashem. Shahayisem Meduvakim Baratzon Hashem Misparach. That you were deeply embedded and entrenched within the desire of God. Because the desire of God and the Ratzon of Hashem is the abiding truth within the world. It's our job, our Bechira, is to choose to see how our Bechira is always within that realm. That's our job, and that's the concept of tshuva. As Rav Tzadok HaKoyin Meleblin, whose yard site it was last night, says in the 40th teaching, in Sidka Satzadik, Iker HaTshuva, the fundamental aspect of tshuva is, for a person to come to a place to recognize in their own minds that their failures become successes. That a person should come and understand within their mind that even the failures that we experienced, even those broken places within our lives, that was still within the confines of God's will. As the Tiferes Yosef says, there is nothing that a human being experiences, there is nothing that a Jew experiences that cannot be fixed. 
And next week, Bezras Hashem, we're going to see how this is fixed. We're going to see the personal experience of the concept of birurim, of personal clarifications, which come to look at our experiences and learn them as Torah and understand them as Torah. We're in the eye of the beholder, the eye of the interpreter, the eye of the translator is going to now have the capacity to endow new meaning on the sugyos, on the texts of our lives. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.